Good morning. It is really good to see everybody today on this beautiful day, isn't it? Bright and crisp, uh, nice weather, a little cool, nice, right? We serve a, a wonderful Father who gives us good gifts, doesn't he? So today we continue on in Matthew chapter 18. We are in the midst of another discourse by Jesus. That are, These discourses are found throughout the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew makes a special effort to uh, highlight some of his sermons along the way. And this is one of the sermons. It, it's a sermonette, uh, but it's an excellent sermon. Uh, very encouraging and convicting, just like Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It, some of the same concepts are there, and it, it definitely will be one of those sermons that will humble all of us. And if not, you've missed the whole point of the sermon. It should drive us all to seek the Lord Jesus. It should drive all of us to see our sin and our need of a Savior. Uh, Today is no different. Today we're going to see how should we treat our fellow disciples of Jesus. How should we treat our fellow disciples of Jesus? Those followers of Jesus, how should we treat one another? The context of this message from Jesus is the disciples' question, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember, they were arguing about who was greatest, who was top dog in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus answers this question in a very unexpected way. Much like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows His kingdom citizens are to be a dramatic contrast to the world, the way the world thinks. This world is led by prideful, powerful, popular people. But Christ's disciples are to be the opposite of this world in many ways. The greatest in Christ's kingdom are not the most popular people in this world. In fact, they're often the most despised. The greatest in Christ's kingdom are the ones that put others above themselves and serve others. Heirs of the kingdom to come are opposite from the world's greatest. Last time in Matthew... We saw the kingdom citizens are those who become like a child. Remember in verses 2 to 4. And Jesus called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child or like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's a beautiful picture here. He brings this small child up, puts him right in the middle of all of them, stands him right in the middle, and, and at one point, he hugs them, hugs the child. It says in one of the other uh, gospel accounts, he embraces this child. It's as if he's right there close with this child, and he says, this one, this is what you must become like. Anyone who becomes a follower of Christ must become like a child. This means we must Humble ourselves. Turn from self-rule, self-reliance to 
humble dependence upon the Lord. That's what characterizes children, right? They're humble. They're dependent. This starts at conversion, right? When we turn from our sin and our self-rule to say, I can't! I need help! I'm dependent upon you, Lord. I need a Savior. I need somebody to die for me. I need somebody to deliver me from the power and penalty of sin. I need somebody to help me to obey. Because I can't. I'm desperate. I'm needy. I'm humble. That starts at conversion. And if you haven't come to that place, then today's the day of salvation. You need to turn to Christ. Because only by Christ, only by Him, can you be delivered. It starts at conversion, but it's a way of life for the believer. We're not about ourselves. We're not, we're not about being out front. We're not about being the one that's known and popular and, and wealthy and healthy and prosperous. We're, it's not about us. We know that. We are humble pursuers of Christ. So next, Jesus turns to how the children of the kingdom should be treated. Jesus contrasts how they should be treated with how they must not be treated. So, don't do this, but do this. or do, Treat them this way, but not that way. There, are, there is a, a positive, do this, or treat them this way, in verse 5. And then there's a negative, don't treat them this way, in verse 6 to 9. Then he gives another, don't treat them this way, in verse 10 to 11. And then he refers back and says, do treat them this way in verses 12 to 14. So you see it. Do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this. So the passage breaks down really easy for us. We'll see all four of those today. How we must treat the children of the kingdom and how we must avoid treating the children of the kingdom. So let's start with this first positive way we must treat the children of the kingdom. It's found in verse 5. Look in your Bibles. The children of the kingdom must be received. They must be received. Notice verse 18, or 18, 5. It says, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is totally opposite again of how the disciples were thinking at that moment. Because they were thinking of what? They were thinking of how he should receive them. Right? He was, they were thinking, Jesus, I want you to receive me this way. I want to be number one. I want to be greatest. It's about me. That's how they were thinking. And Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Think opposite. That's what he's saying. Think the opposite. They wanted to be first in Jesus' kingdom. In their minds, it was all about being close to Jesus in the kingdom. And this is a good desire, isn't it? How many of you want to be close to Christ? Yeah, I want to be close to Christ. I want to be close to Christ in the kingdom, don't you? I want to know Him. I want to enjoy Him. I want to be as close as possible. I'd like to be right up underneath His feet. Right? Watching Him. Walking with Him. Knowing Him. Enjoying Him. I want that all the time. How about you? How many of you? Yeah? I want that. But it happens in a totally unexpected way that we get to rejoice and enjoy Christ. 
It happens in a way we don't expect. Getting close to Jesus occurs when one of his disciples receives one of the least of these. One of the least likely. An unpopular, insignificant little child. When you receive him, you receive Christ. When we seek to help the least likely on behalf of Christ, in His name, we actually receive Christ, is what He says. Huh. So the closest disciples to Jesus are those who are seeking the least likely in the name of Christ. Hmm. Seeking the hurting. Seeking the lowly. Welcoming the least likely. All of this must be done in the name of Christ, by the way. It's not just some social project where I can elevate myself in front of the world. It's not about me being something special. Boy, he fed the poor. It's not about that. It's about in the name of Christ. For his glory and his honor and his fame. When we do something nice to the least likely, and we're doing it for Him, not our own show, then we're doing it with the right motives, and we're actually receiving Him at that time. We're close to Him. We're enjoying Him. Let me ask you a question. Is serving other people enjoyable? It is if you're thinking biblically. If you're thinking it's about Christ and it's not about me. It's not about being on show. It's about seeking the insignificant person and loving them, caring for them and pointing them to Christ. Paul Washer had a tweet this week that perfectly lays this out. He says this, quote, How is God glorified by a rose that he plants in the forest so remote that no man or angel will ever see it? He is glorified because he sees it. That is, God sees it. How is God glorified by those servants who are hidden from all notoriety and fame? Because God sees them and knows their way and rejoices. Boom, 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 boom. That's it. That nails it. See, when you... When you receive the insignificant little child and you do it for his glory and his fame, it might not be noticed by anybody. But Christ is there. And Christ is honored. And you enjoy him more. Is that not a lesson we all need to apply? Friends, what matters is not the notoriety or even the apparent largeness of our impact on the world. What matters is how we serve and pursue the lost of this world, no matter how insignificant they are in this world. Hey, I don't want a super giant church if it's about notoriety. If it's about me, I don't want that. It can't be that. If it's that, we're all lost. 
If this church gets small and God's providence moves many of you on, I pray that does not happen. If I am faithful to serve the lowly, the quote-unquote insignificant, for His name, praise be to God. And that's all that matters. Can you see Jesus sitting there with that little child in his arm saying this? <laughs> what a lesson, right? It would have been so contrary to the world. He's doing this to illustrate his point. The God who created the world, He's doing the very thing He's calling them to do. The God that created the world is holding one of the least known and most insignificant people in the world at that time in His arms. He was loving this little child. Jesus says, in effect, here, my kingdom citizens become like this one. They are humble like this one. And they receive those like this one. They welcome ones like this one. This kind of gentleness and love is opposite from the world. We must become like the child. And then we must treat others like these little children. We must serve them. Paul stated something similar in Romans chapter 12 when he said, Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Boy, those are words to apply, aren't they? So first... We've observed the children of the kingdom must be received. Secondly, we see the negative. The children of the kingdom must not be caused to stumble. They must not be caused to stumble. Notice in verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. Jesus changes the description of the children of the kingdom to a new reference. And instead of child, become like a child, he starts using a little phrase, little ones. It's actually one word, and it implies little ones. Little ones. But it's still the same, right? The child is now the little one. The believer is now the little one. The disciple is now the little one. He said, notice in verse 6, it's little ones who believe in me. Little ones who believe in me. In verse 10, one of these little ones. Verse 14, one of these little ones. So it's the child is now the little ones. It's the same reference. So now the kingdom children are referred to as little ones. Jesus explains how these little ones must not be treated. The warning is this. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in Jesus to stumble, they are headed for a frightening judgment. That's the warning. First, Jesus explains that causing a child of God to stumble must be avoided at all costs. 
at all costs, no matter what, we must not cause fellow believers to stumble into sin. To explain just how important this is, to not cause one of these little ones to stumble, Jesus states it this way, dramatically, doesn't he? It's better a horrific, a horrific tragedy happened to a person rather than they deceive one of these little ones. It'd be better if a bad tragedy happened to the person than for you to cause somebody to stumble. Put it simple, it'd be better we die than leave someone into sin and deception and away from God. It'd be better for us to die quickly before it happens. One of the harder roads to navigate is the path of both standing firm against false teachers and false teaching, and yet also giving grace and not condemning fellow brothers and sisters that are off or different on some doctrines. That's a very hard path to navigate. We have to give grace to the humble and be gentle and patient with one another. Tolerant is even what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. With those that mess up and sin and yet want to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. So we have to be gentle and gracious and kind and loving and tolerant to one another. However, we have to stand firm and be bold and courageous in calling out false teachers who end up rejecting the true gospel and causing people to stumble. I think a true biblical ministry of mercy and compassion does not mean we don't confront evil and deception. That's the world's lie that says that you can't have both. You have to have both. You must have both. You must be both bold, courageous, and call out sin. And call out false teaching. At the same time, you have to be gentle and kind and loving to those that are stumbling and bumbling and walking that little one's path. Finding that balance is not easy, is it? It takes the Spirit of God working in the children of God to accomplish that. We do seek reconciliation, don't we? We seek holiness, don't we? We seek purity and truth. Yet we also do this with gentleness and forgiveness and humility. Offering hope to the hurting. This is the disciples' life, isn't it? This is who we are. It requires an abiding relationship with God. By the way, it's a biblical house too. Your kids, parents, should know that you love them. And if there's a place that they need a hug, they can run to you and enjoy that hug. I hope my kids know that. But there's also, they should know the fear of the Lord is in the house. And that we take sin seriously in the house. 
And God will not be dishonored in our house. For as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there's this respect and honor and fear, but yet love and gentleness and grace. This is what we're seeing in this passage. Both receive me. Don't cause them to stumble. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. Fear the Lord. This is the disciples' life. This sermon of Jesus shows both sides of the biblical ministry. One that is gentle and merciful to the lost sheep, and yet also bold and firm against those who deceive. Jesus talks both of fire towards the deceiver, but also speaks of gentleness to the strange sheep. He speaks of church discipline, and yet also forgiveness. Interesting. Is that your life? The tendency is is for us to lean one way or the other. It takes an abiding relationship with Christ to walk that path. Because only Christ could do it perfectly, right? And He did it perfectly. Friends, a biblical ministry to the children of God has both the fear of God and the grace of God in view. In the same way, a biblical home has both the fear of God and the grace of God in view. And a biblical follower of Jesus has both the fear of God and the grace of God in view. Our personal walk. One without the other is not a biblical Christian. One without the other is not a biblical home. And one without the other is not a biblical church. Wow, right? In this paragraph here in verse 6 to 9, Jesus emphasizes the radical steps we must go to avoid causing believers to stumble. It'd be better for us to be destroyed in a horrific way rather than deceive the children. Here is the picture language. I want to give you a, a more literal translation of this. Better to have a millstone turned by a donkey hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea What is a millstone turned by a donkey? Here it is right here. That's a millstone. It's a millstone. And if you see in the back back there, that's a donkey. That's the millstone. Very large. It would be better to have that millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause somebody to stumble. There's the donkey. The donkey was actually turning the millstone at this little place in Israel, in Nazareth. Yeah, crushing olives. That's exactly right. It was a millstone. Very interesting. I thought of this immediately when I saw the translation. Jesus is telling the disciples how important it is to properly disciple the little ones. I think many, many evangelical circles and many evangelical circles need to read this section again. I think they have definitely fallen off the wagon on the other side. This quote-unquote free grace movement that says you can live however you want. Just this week, the United Methodist Church, 
as the Wesleys rolled over in their graves, as one person told me, has come to the conclusion they must split because half their churches want an inclusive LGBT stance. This teaching says being part of the LGBT lifestyle is perfectly okay for Christians. And beloved, this passage directly applies to that. Friends, a person's biological identity is God's design for them. To reject this is under the divine judgment of God, Romans 1. There is no middle ground for this. I will go to jail if that's what it requires. That is sin. It's a sinful lifestyle and it's the under the judgment of God. You must repent. There's hope in the Savior that came to deliver you from that sin. Just like if you're having an adulterous affair, there's hope for you too. Repent and trust in Christ. Some of these same issues are happening in the Southern Baptist Convention also. On the feminist issue. There's no middle ground on complementarianism. There is no middle ground. There is no such thing as complementarian light, though I've heard it numerous times. You know what that is? Heresy. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. It's sinful. Men and women have God-given roles in the home. If you don't like it, take it up with the author, God. It's His Word. You say, Mike, you're being awfully harsh. No, I'm exhorting from a passage that says it'd be better for you to have that millstone hung around your head and thrown in neck and thrown in the deepest part of the sea. I'm going to stand on this. We are going to stand on this. And if you change and you don't like that, I'm not your pastor anymore. Sorry. I will leave. We will not compromise on these things at GBCT. If we do, we're basically undermining the little ones. And you know who we're going after? We're going after the children in the home. The little ones. To reverse these roles is to not care for the little ones. Men are supposed to protect and provide for their homes. This is not debated. It's all over the Bible. If they are not doing this, they are in sin. Rebellion against God. And they are causing the little ones to stumble. Men be men. Women be women. If not, it'd be better for a millstone like this to be hung around your neck and thrown in the deepest part of the sea. 
Men, teach your little men to be men. Women, teach your little women to be women. Women, don't teach your women to be Captain Marvel. Teach them to be loving, gentle, compassionate mothers. This is a direct application from this, and you might not like it, but it is it. Side note? I thought that was a side note. Briefly a key point here. If women are mistreated by men in the past, it doesn't make it right to change God's design for marriage in the church. Do you hear me? Evil men that mistreat ladies should have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the deepest part of the sea. A man that mistreats a weaker vessel is a coward. And he should be judged and will be judged by God Almighty. However, the mistreatment of women does not mean every woman should now be head of the helm. A man who abdicates his role as a leader of the home should also have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the deepest part of the sea. If a man is not leading his home in a God-glorifying, gracious way, with humility and holiness, he should have the millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the deepest part of the sea. The Me Too movement should lead to men stepping up and doing what they're supposed to do biblically. It shouldn't lead to women leading. And it won't. By God's grace, it will not happen in this church. And all the elders are with me, right? We must stand firm. It would be better for me to pluck my eyes out and cut my hands off than to lead you guys astray. The same way, evil abuses of people in the LGBT movement doesn't make a sinful lifestyle okay either. We must stand firm. At the same time, we must be careful to see this sin correctly. It is grieving and unrighteous and it leads to judgment, doesn't it? We should never make light of man's depravity. We must take sin seriously. This is the point of 7 to 9. That's the whole point of 7 to 9. He admits the world has inevitable stumbling blocks. That's what Jesus says. They have inevitable stumbling blocks. Does the world have inevitable stumbling blocks? Yeah, you read the news or read anything ever right now. It's like every week I see a new invention of evil. How about you? This week I read an article that absolutely blew my mind. 
by the t- by the end of it, I was I, I think the article was calling a female a they, so that they didn't use the pronoun she, because he was he she whatever was she had become binary. What? Call me they or them, even instead of he or she. We almost said at, at the moment we might giggle at the foolishness of that, but beloved, that is tragic. That is grieving. That is sad. But it's inevitable for the world. It's inevitable for the world. But remember the audience. But that man who brings this and introduces this to the little ones who believe in me, oh, it's really bad. Woe to that man. Take heed, men. Take heed, men. Are you raising your men to be men? Women, are you raising your women to be women? Whoa. This should bring fear over every one of us in the room. He admits the world has its inevitable stumbling blocks. The world is full of inventors of evil, but the one that brings it Woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. We must understand the false teachers that say sin is not sin and that sin is not going to be caused judgment are wicked and must be avoided at all costs. I'll do it. Hear me out. Joyce Myers, Beth Moore, heretics. Run. Run. Joel Osteen. Run. Don't listen to it. He's garbage. He's sinful. It would be better if he had a millstone hung around his neck and thrown in the deepest part of the sea. He's going to fire, face a fiery judgment. Rick Warren. Fiery judgment. Anybody that doesn't stand on the exclusivity of Christ... And that he's the only way. Fiery judgment. Man. This is what he's saying. You know who spoke about hell the most? Jesus. Look. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. Eternal fire is is hell just a temporary thing? No, no, it's eternal. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. And throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Mm. 
We need more of this, don't we? We need a fire, uh, a fear of God. Again, balanced. Ultimately, we see here, our avoidance of sin must be one of our top priorities. We must fight sin daily. We must fight thinking much of ourselves all the time. We must fight seeking to control everything all the time. We must fight self-righteousness every day. We must fight the flesh every day, every hour, every second of every day of our entire life. That's my life. And that better be your life. Radical war with the flesh. And it means being a little child. Saying, I can, I need you. Help me. I can by your grace. I, oh, I need you. I need you. No, we don't fight by ourselves. We, we walk in the Spirit, as Galatians talks about. Empowered by the Spirit to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. And the Spirit of God works in us. Praise the Lamb, Right? And any temptation to buy or embrace a different gospel must be killed. Any temptation to buy an antinomian gospel must be killed. A no-law gospel. That is that we can do whatever we want because grace abounds. We don't work our way to a right standing with God. No, it's not work salvation. But we're saved to what? Obey. We're saved to enjoy God and abide in Him and love Him. We're declared right and our hearts are changed so that we can serve Him. And we can kill the sin. Both are heretical, by the way. Either side, right? Legalism, heretical. Antinomianism, heretical. You see it? Both are wrong. Is it let go and let God, by the way? No. You strive. You fight. You kill. You make war. You die daily by the Spirit's empowerment. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Both. So the children of the kingdom must receive must be received, and they must not deceive. Third, the children of the kingdom must not be despised, must not be despised. Notice in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What was Jesus' point here? Well, it's, it, it, it's not all about having a guardian angel. I know. Bah, darn. I don't have a guardian angel. Is that what that passage is talking about? No, it's not all about that. It's actually not even the main point. The main point is the children of God are the objects of the Heavenly Father's attention all the time. 
That's actually the main point. Because the angels are what? Messengers. And there's this constant awareness of the angels of what's going on. And they see the face of my Father. So we must view the children of God with this honor and respect because they're objects of the Father's attention. Is that important? Oh, yes, it's very important. Often this passage, like I said, is is used to make it all about the angels, but that's not the point. It's about the Father's attention. The angels are relaying information and pleading a case before the Father. The angels are God's watchmen. They are intimately involved in the believer's life and they do exactly what the Father says. So if the Father says, take that person out because they're bothering somebody, guess what? An angel can do it. Very quickly, very easy. We see an example of this in Herod's death, Agrippa I. Acts 12, remember Herod, that Herod, different Herod, not Herod the Great, grandson of Herod the Great. Remember, he was the first to kill an apostle, James. One's hearing this. Killed James. Had James killed. Had Peter arrested, right? Remember? Peter walked out because the angel, right? And then Herod stands up at Caesarea Maritime and takes worship. What happens? Herod dies. Herod dies. I think the father was taking the persecution of his own seriously. What do you think? We must not dishonor one another. We must treat each other with respect and love and grace. We must have each other's back. We must exhort, encourage, rebuke, and yet also comfort one another. We must be one another's encouragers. We must never run down our fellow believers. God takes mistreatment of His chosen ones seriously. That's the point of this passage. Is there any room for gossip? None. None. No room for gossip. For with gossip comes what? The angels seeing it? who stand before the face of the Father, who knows it. We must receive our fellow believers. We must not deceive our fellow believers. We must honor our fellow believers. And finally, we must value them. Not dishonor them, but value them. The children of the kingdom must be valued. Verse 12, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have gone astray, or have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Oh, what a beautiful section of Scripture, isn't it? It's also, for me as a shepherd, extremely convicting. 
Say, why is it so convicting? Y'all get that? Y'all get those texts on Monday from me? There's probably some people that I'm taking note of right now that aren't here. You didn't know that, did you? I, I, I'm looking around. That's part of my goal is while I'm preaching is to take note of all those that aren't here today. You say, really? <laughs> yeah, you get that text on Monday that says, hey, missed you yesterday. This is what our Heavenly Father's like. He doesn't want you to miss one service. He wants you to be in the Word all the time. He wants you to be abiding in Him and enjoying His Word all the time. We must value one another. This means that you've got to think about somebody other than yourself, right? When you come to church, is it all about you? I'm ready to get a full meal. Give it to me, Pastor Mike. Feed me. That shouldn't be your main reason being here. Really? Your main reason for coming to church should be to worship God. And second is like unto it. To love your neighbor as yourself. Love the brethren. Value other people. Have you ever found? That's so easy to get self-focused. That person didn't say hi to me. They walked by and did not value me. Cannot believe how insensitive that person is. Do you see the hypocrisy in that statement? You are basically saying what? It's all about you. It's not about us. Are we loving each other? Have you noticed that somebody's missing today? It's pretty full today, which praise the Lord, right? Have you noticed somebody's missing? Does it affect you? Well, I don't know anybody here. (laughs) Making disciples is valuing even the most insignificant. Loving them. Aren't you glad these verses are true? (laughs) Because you know what's so amazing about this passage? Is that Jesus lived it. Jesus lived it. Because you know who the 99, or who the one that strayed is? Every single believer. Did you catch that? Because every single one of us is born what? Dead in sin and opposed to God and running from Him. But our Heavenly Father, because He chose us before the foundation of the world, pursued us 
and he pursued it so much that he sent his own son to come into the world to die at the hands of wretched men so that we could be redeemed and brought into the fold of God and become his sheep and him become our shepherd. Because the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Because he loves us. Praise God, right? If he loves you, and loves you, the little one, are you loving others? Do we treat the children of the kingdom with the honor and value that our king does? What a passage, right? What a king. What a king that would lay down his life for his children. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us. The sinners. The little ones. The children. Lord, we admit that these passages and these things just are at times so extremely convicting. Because <laughs> we know, Father, that we don't look like you perfectly yet. We know that we don't look like Christ perfectly yet. And that we're still in these bodies of death and we're still prone to think much of ourselves and little of those that you value. Oh God, have mercy on us. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our sin. Father, help us, help us to love like you love. Help us to be bold against those leading the sheep astray. Rebuking it. And yet gentle and kind to the hurting, to the lost sheep. Work in us, God. For your namesake, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.